And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Mailbag Edition of the Athletic Baseball Show, coming to you for a second straight week. That won't always be the case here in the offseason, but we get you two in a row, so the mailbag luckily filled up quickly. I am Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal, as always. Uh, Award season is behind us, and the winter meeting's still a couple of weeks away, so it's a good time to check in and talk about what else the Hall of Fame. Ken, I know it's a topic near and dear to your heart. Uh, as we record this on Monday afternoon, the new ballot is out. And so, Ken, what? let's do this. I'm going to rattle off the names, and then you can kind of give your early thoughts here. Of course, we always kind of have an idea of which players are coming on, but now it's official. And the new players are Bronson Arroyo, Carlos Beltran, Matt Cain, R.A. Dickey, Jacoby Ellsbury, Andre Ethier, J.J. Hardy, John Lackey, Mike Napoli, Johnny Peralta, Francisco Rodriguez, Houston Street, Jared Weaver, and Jason Wirth. Those 14 players combined with the 14 that were already on there, Scott Rowland, Todd Helton, Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, Gary Sheffield, A-Rod, Jeff Kent, Manny Ramirez, Omar Vizquel, Andy Pettit, Jimmy Rollins, Bobby Abreu, Mark Burley, and Torrey Holt. That is your full ballot. Ken, take it away. Well, as you said, Tim... It's never too early to discuss Hall of Fame. I thought we would wait, but you know what? Why wait? Why give it another few weeks before diving into this? We'll dive into it further and deeper as we get closer to the actual vote. But for starters, first I suggest that everyone read Jason Stark's recap of the ballot today. It's really good. He breaks down everything quite well. And I'll hit on a couple of points that he mentioned and say some things on my own as well. Now, this ballot is different than some in previous years because a lot of names have been cleared. No Bonds, no Clemens, no Schilling. They are now in the contemporary era ballot. They have moved from the BBWAA to the version of the Veterans Committee that will be voted upon just this year with them. So they're off. This is Jeff Kent's last year on the ballot. That is worth mentioning as well. And really the only newcomer that stands a decent chance this year and beyond is perhaps Carlos Beltran. I don't see anybody else on this ballot coming onto this ballot who is going to make a significant impact, who probably would even get 5%. I would imagine everyone but Beltran will fall off. Now, Beltran will be an interesting figure as we get into this. Clearly, if you look at him strictly for his playing accomplishments, what he did during his spectacular career, he is very worthy, in my opinion. Nine All-Star Game appearances, three gold gloves. He won the Roberto Clemente Award, the game's highest honor, 435 home runs, 312 stolen bases. 
great in the postseason. He had a 1,200 OPS in about 256 postseason appearances. That's a healthy chunk. That's not a small sample. And he is someone that really, during his playing career, carried himself extremely well. He was only a top five MVP finisher one time. He finished fourth in 2004. That surprised me a little bit, but it's a career of excellence. There's no doubt about that, playing excellence. Now, where this gets a little complicated is Beltran's role in the Astros sign-stealing scandal in 2017. He was not there in 18. They were found to have done this two consecutive years, but he was one of the architects of the scheme that the Astros put together to steal signs illegally, the trash can banging scheme that we wrote about, that we've talked about, others have talked about for years now. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this affects him on the ballot. We know that many PED users, actually the majority of PED users, have had a very difficult time, Bonds and Clemens being the foremost examples. A-Rod now as well, though A-Rod is a little bit different. His infractions came after the rules were firmly in place. So this is, with the sign stealing, a different form of transgression, a different form of cheating, as it were. And I would expect that it will ding Beltron to some extent. I have not made up my mind yet. I don't know where I'm going to go with this at this moment. I haven't really given it much thought, to be perfectly honest. But I will in the coming weeks. As I mentioned before, a number of players are no longer on the BBWAA ballot. Bonds, Clemens, Schilling. And that has opened things up considerably. I have from my ballot last year, six holdovers that I will vote for again. I can tell you that. Helton, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Scott Rowland, Gary Sheffield, Billy Wagner. I am a person who believes closers are people too, as well as Hall of Famers when they are deserving. That is why (laughs) Billy Wagner is on my ballot. So that's six. I have voted for 10. I cannot recall how many years in a row now. That's how crowded the ballot has been. This ballot is not as crowded. So clearly... If I want to vote for Beltron, there won't be any restriction from a structural standpoint. I can do it. The question is, will I do it? Now, the other question that Jason raises in his column on Monday is, will Scott Rowland, the leading returning vote getter, get enough votes to push himself over the 75% minimum for induction? He was at 63.2% last year, 47 votes shy. That's a good number of votes, as Jason points out. It's not easy to make up that many in one year. At the same time, voters know that on this ballot, at least, he has the best chance, perhaps the only chance, of getting in this year, and that could boost him as well. There are some voters who might say, I don't want to be a part of a shutout. I believe there should be a Hall of Famer elected by the BBWAA every year, and therefore, even though I believe Roland is borderline, I will vote for him. He's close enough. Most voters don't look at it that way. For most voters, a player is either a Hall of Famer or not. But I wonder if that dynamic will come into play. Honestly, it shouldn't. You should vote for a player on the merits, whether he is deserving or not. And that is that. But because this year is a little bit different, we may see that kind of thinking come into play. So I am sure in the weeks ahead, we will debate this and debate it and debate it some more. And it's going to be an interesting conversation, as it always is, Hall of Fame season. But 
We also have a lot of other things going on in this sport, most of them revolving around the hot stove. I wrote quite a bit on Sunday about various issues and different things going on. From Verlander, talking to the Mets, to Cody Bellinger's sudden free agency, all kinds of things. So let's dive into the mailbag, Tim, and get to some of those questions. And I believe we have some other topics to cover as well this week. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved down the road, the next one of these will be uh, winter meetings week, so you have a little time. But get those questions in. You can call us, 646-543-7072, or the email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And Ken, the first question comes from Chet. He says, I'd love to hear someone revisit the sentiments Joe Madden voiced this summer in light of the most recent managerial hirings. Of course, a lot of what Madden voiced was part of Starkville. You can go back and listen to that episode if you'd like on this feed. Uh, He says, Bruce Bochy is an obvious outlier, but others seem to fit the trend of treating this position more as a supervisor than a manager of the roster and a leader of human beings. Skip Schumacher has never managed at any level, while Matt Cotraro and Pedro Grafol managed mostly in the lower levels long ago. John Schneider also fit that profile prior to taking over in Toronto on an interim basis this summer. When they hired Cotraro, the Royals implied that one of his strong points was his willingness to take direction from the front office on his day-to-day decisions. First of all, there is no question that virtually all clubs today require more collaboration than in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s. It is much more a position in which that requirement, the ability to work with the front office, is considered paramount, at least by the front offices. So... From that perspective, when you hear of any manager, be it Quattraro or anyone else, having to fill a collaborative role, well, guess what? That's just the way it is today, from Aaron Boone right on down. And there are some managers who are older who maybe do it a little bit differently, but even Buck Showalter, when he came to the Mets last season, he had to adjust, and not adjust with the way he thought about the game necessarily, but there are more meetings now that take place before games dictating pitching plans, discussing other kinds of things. There are all kinds of differences from when he was last a manager with the Orioles some five, six years ago. So things have changed and things are going to continue to change. That's the nature of the sport. That is where the position is right now, the managing position. And we can question it. We can talk about it. We can Harken for the days of Earl Weaver running the whole show by himself, but it's just not that way anymore. Now, I did speak with an executive just this morning about what is perceived in the industry to be a shortage of quality managerial candidates. And the executive said, guess what? This is the case every year. It's the case going back 10 years, 20 years. We always feel this way as an industry. And one reason he said, and I thought this was very interesting, is that baseball unlike basketball and football right now, basically has almost a requirement that the manager at one point played the game. doesn't have to be at the highest level, the major league level, but he had to have or has to have some playing experience. The players have a hard time respecting a manager who never played. Now, that's not the case in certain other sports. It's something that distinguishes baseball, not necessarily in a good way, but it creates problems. Because 
you're talking about people who essentially came up as players, and that's what they were. That's what they learned to be. That's the skill set they had. They did not develop as leaders, as collaborators, as people who knew how to handle the media, though many prominent players, of course, do, as people who could communicate both with their players and their front office and their owners, all of the different things that are required of a manager. And it's a vast job. A lot of people think, oh, man, just manage the game, make pitching changes. That's how they judge a manager. No. First, I judge a manager by how he gets his team to play. Does he get them to play hard and play fundamentally sound? That, to me, is number one. So that's where it starts. And then all of these other things come into play. And frankly, most managers are not trained in all of these areas. So that's where we are as an industry. That's why you often see first-timers come into play now, maybe a little bit more so because they are perceived to be perhaps more pliant than others would be, than a Joe Madden might be, for example. But again, when we talk about new trends in the game, we can question them. And we can certainly say, hey, that's not proper. The front office should not be dictating in-game decisions if that's the case. But to argue this shouldn't be the way it's done, well, you're fighting an uphill battle. It's like fighting against analytics. Oh, let's get analytics out of the game. That's ridiculous. Analytics are here to stay. I would say that collaborative managers are here to stay. It's just the way the game has evolved. And as fans, as media, we all have to evolve with it. Yeah, the people that are making the hires aren't going to suddenly give up you know, power and give it all to the manager. It's just not going to happen once the uh, cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, Chris is up next says, how do you think the implementation of the pitch clock next season will affect free agency for starting pitchers this off season? I feel like we got a similar question, Ken, back in the summer, but now that we're right at free agency, I thought it was worth revisiting. Will injury history be more heavily scrutinized? May we see a hesitancy from front offices to go the extra year or extra million dollars with a starting pitcher due to possible increased risk of injury due to the shortened time between pitches? It's an excellent question, Chris, and I'm not sure of the answer. My expectation is that nothing will change, at least for the top of the market, and perhaps for the rest of the market as well. The expectation among front offices is that pitchers will adapt, just as pitchers in the minor leagues adapted. Does it increase the rate of injury, perhaps, for some pitchers? It might, and there's no question that it's an unknown territory as far as baseball is concerned, Major League Baseball, but at the same time, 
pitchers, players face a lot of things that they need to adjust to throughout the course of their careers, and I believe that this is just viewed as one of them. Now, one thing I thought was interesting was the question of would teams back away from pitchers who have had slower paces over the years, or at least last season? The slowest guy in the majors last year from a pitching perspective was none other than Shohei Otani. Alec Manoa was second, Corbin Burns was third, Aaron Nola, Kevin Gossman, Hugh Darvish, Kyle Gibson, Jordan Montgomery. These are the slowest pitchers in terms of pace. Fangraphs has that category on its page. Verlander was ninth, ninth slowest. Perhaps that had to do with him coming back from Tommy John surgery. Martin Perez, who just accepted a qualifying offer, was 10th. Pablo Lopez, subject of trade talks, 13th, and right on down. I don't know that that will affect things either. I expect Justin Verlander will be able to adjust, and I don't know that it will hurt him. But it is something perhaps teams are looking at. They do look at everything. We know that. They are global in their approach to pitching and injuries and the future. But I just don't believe that it's going to cost Verlander any money or cost any pitcher any money this offseason. Maybe once there's more data after a couple of years, then you'll see how it how it impacts the market. We're going to go to voicemail for the next question. Hey, guys. Happy offseason. Hope the offseason is treating you well. I've got a question about the World Baseball Classic. What do players think about the World Baseball Classic? Is it something they look forward to? Do the players who do not get selected for those teams watch it? Is it even on anyone's radar, or is this just, a spring training extended for the handful of players from each team that get to go. Thanks. Just wondering your thoughts. The way I will answer this question is by saying that people who are involved in the World Baseball Classic, players, coaches, managers, even reporters, fans, everyone who watches these games up close or with some degree of concentration enjoys them. They are great. The players play hard. They play for their countries. They have a lot of pride. And that's true not just for the Latin American countries, not just for the Asian countries, but it's true for the United States as well. The U.S. won the last World Baseball Classic, won with Jim Leland as its manager. And look at the commitments this season so far, or at least for 2023. And I think that will tell you something about how the players view this. For the U.S., this is the U.S. alone. JT Realmuto and Will Smith at catcher, two of the best. Pete Alonso with Paul Goldschmidt at first base, two of the best. Trevor Story at second, Nolan Arenado at third. Tim Anderson, Bobby Witt Jr. at short. In the outfield, Mookie, Bryce Harper, Cedric Mullins, Mike Trout. Now, pitching is always the problem. And it's not a question of whether pitchers enjoy the WBC. They do. It's a question of what teams will allow them to do how free they will be to actually go and pitch in high-stakes competition in the middle of March. That's a problem for a lot of clubs, and I can understand why. It's also a problem for a number of pitchers, I would imagine. But generally speaking, to answer your question, players are generally very enthusiastic about the WBC. The ones who have participated greatly enjoyed it. We've got Shohei Otani playing for Japan this year. We're going to have powerhouse rosters from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and other Latin American countries. As always, these guys take a ton of pride in playing for their countries and trying to establish baseball dominance. So yes, it's a great event. I wish 
that there were fewer problems associated with it in terms of the schedule because there is a question of exertion, right? Playing that hard in March, does it lead to injury, especially with pitchers? There's always this kind of thing hanging over the WBC. But I advise anyone out there to watch the games. They are a blast. And I'm not just saying this because they're on Fox this year. I would have said that any year and with any network. They are fun. And you get the emotion, especially from not necessarily the U.S., but the U.S. does have that. I remember the Adam Jones catch last time around, the unbelievable center yes. field uh, wall jumping over. And just the energy he had from that in a, in a game-saving play. But all of the countries, because while the U.S. players are always on this big scale in Major League Baseball, supported by their you know American fans, guys from other countries – are usually playing in a foreign land, and now they get to be, you know, representing their country. I think that goes a lot into it. It, it reminds me of like a mix of Major League Baseball and Winter League ball, and the way that the the energy is down there. Um, all right, next question comes from Brian. He's a Cardinals fan. Says obviously there's a huge hole to fill at catcher next season. Obviously there's Contreras available as a free agent. And Sean Murphy is probably available, as are all Oakland Athletics. But <laughs> but I just don't see them making that kind of a splash. Who else is out there that could be impactful and fit the Cardinals' MO a little better? Would Danny Jansen be available since Toronto already has Mourinho and Alejandro Kirk? Somebody else out there that's sneaky available, maybe? The Cardinals are definitely looking, and they have a problem. And the problem is replacing one of the greatest defensive catchers not just of our generation, but all time. And that, of course, is Yadier Molina. You can't replace Yadier Molina. We all know that. But they are in position to make a trade. And maybe it's for Sean Murphy. I wouldn't rule them out on Sean Murphy. They have the farm system to do pretty much anything they want. So it could be Murphy. It could be one of the three Toronto catchers, Jansen, Kirk, or Moreno. They're all different. Jansen, two years away from free agency, good offensive year last year. Kirk, of course, was an all-star last year, more walks than strikeouts. He is a dynamic offensive player. Moreno, great prospect. They worked him in the infield and outfield late last year to bring him some more flexibility. He probably would cost the most in terms of prospects simply because he has the most time left. I saw the report of Contreras linked to the Cardinals. I'm not buying it. You're not going to go from one of the best game callers and handlers of pitchers in Molina to a guy that does not have that reputation, Contreras. Could I see Vasquez as a free agent possibility? Yes. But I do believe at this moment the Cardinals' best move and the one they will make is a trade for one of the catchers we just mentioned. As for under-the-radar possibilities, if they were over the radar, I probably would know about them. I'm not sure there are any, but listen, it's the offseason. I say this all the time. I'm sure you guys get tired of me blabbing about it all the time. Anything can happen, and that's not just lip service. We often see in the offseason things that do happen that snap our heads. So I don't rule anything out, but the Cardinals are not a team that generally shocks us with their moves. I would expect they trade for one of the catchers out there. Let's go back to voicemail. Hey, Ken, this is Jack from uh, Newport Beach, California. Uh, I'm an Angels fan, and the last eight to ten years or so have been quite painful seeing all the greatness of Mike Trout go to waste and now Otani. And a lot of Angels fans, including myself, have been clamoring for a full rebuild. And it just seems to be 
So Tani is, is our best piece to do that. So it was kind of heartbreaking to see that uh, GM Perry Manazian went out and said that he had no intentions of trading uh, Otani here in the offseason, meaning his value will just be even less um, here at the deadline if the Angels don't find a way to pull it around and, and make the playoffs, which it, it doesn't really look like that. So my, my question is to you first being, what is the strategy behind this? Is this any sort of bargaining chip? What do you see as Tani's value being at the deadline? And secondly, what is the role of, of Moreno's selling team potentially playing all of this? Jack, what you said second or what you asked second is probably the first reason, the ownership change that is pending. We all know the team is for sale. Artie Moreno put it up for sale. And while the Nationals traded Juan Soto in a similar circumstance, they did after saying they wouldn't. It seems from what I've gathered that Moreno simply is not willing to make this decision while the sale of the team is pending. He prefers to let the next owner figure out what to do with Otani. So what does that do? It spares Moreno from being the bad guy, the guy who trades Shohei Otani, and it also enables the next owner to put forth his or her best foot forward with trying to sign Otani long-term. The Angels have tried to this point, quite obviously. They have not reached an agreement. And now the question is one of timing. So Otani is entering his final season before free agency. They've already agreed upon a salary, $30 million for next season. That will be his last salary under team control. After that, yes, the Angels could sign him to an extension, but he does become eligible for free agency. At that point, what would the Angels get if they lost him? Well, only draft picks and international signing bonus pool space. Not much. So that is why, Jack, you and a lot of other Angel fans would prefer to see him traded now rather than lose him for nothing. But if you do trade him now, and you're the Angels, and then the sale is completed, let's say, just for your argument's sake, by opening day or even by the deadline next year, you're depriving that new owner of the chance to wow Otani, to overwhelm him financially, to persuade him that things will be different and that this is the place he should be. So... That seems to me to be what is driving this more than anything. Perhaps even the prospective owners are telling Moreno, we don't want him traded. We want a chance to keep this guy. And that seems to me to be the thing here. Now, the Nationals, again, took a much different approach with Soto. Soto had two-plus years of control. It was a little bit different. They had offered him $440 million over 15 years. They just felt maybe, hey, if he's not taking that, we're not going higher. That's that. Let's go. I don't know exactly where the Otani negotiations have gone, what he might have rejected, but clearly the Angels are not ready to make that same kind of call, at least just yet. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano-instrumentation, all through a barely-there poke-hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, 
nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, we get a lot of questions from Rich Calabrese. Uh, They're always lengthy and they're always creative. Uh, There's not always time in the show for them, Ken, but this one I, I managed to get in. Here's Rich. He says, I never even heard it brought up before, but why doesn't Major League Baseball let teams trade luxury tax space? Now, he said cap space, but he's talking about luxury tax space. I know it would need to be collectively bargained, and we are in year one of a new CBA, but we always hear of the union big market teams complaining of small market teams pocketing the luxury tax money that they receive in a league where payroll ranges from $60 million to $300 million with a $232 million soft cap luxury kick-in. Rather than having a luxury tax, keep the $232 million soft cap, but let the small market teams tap into and trade an asset they'd never use. There are teams like Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay, Cincinnati, who will never approach $232 million in payroll. The Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, Mets, teams like that are always looking to inch above and come back below, but would love to go across that limit. Rather than pay taxes, let Pittsburgh trade $32 million in caps. This is an example now, Ken. Let Pittsburgh trade $32 million in cap space, making their new soft cap $200 million, to the Yankees for prospects that would now make the Yankees soft cap $264 million. This lets small market teams tap into assets they normally wouldn't have. Wouldn't be able to use while costing big markets to have to give up precious prospects to spend more. Rich, it's an interesting concept that you're suggesting, and the way I see it, or the way I interpret what you're saying, what you're trying to do is design something that would enhance competitive balance. On the other hand, I have one, never heard this once brought up in labor discussions or or by either side, even in informal discussions. And the reason I believe is that the owners would view this kind of system in which you could trade luxury tax space as one 
that serve to defeat the purpose of the luxury tax. You don't want, if you're the owners, that threshold growing. You just negotiated hard to keep it to 230 when the union wanted it to go even higher. That's the first threshold. So to create a situation where you'd be helping the Yankees, Dodgers, Mets, etc., spend money without penalty, without that threshold staring them in the face, I don't see the owners ever agreeing to that. Now, you could say, well, but look, the lower revenue teams would get prospects. They'd have a better chance. I don't know. It seems to me that that would only serve to widen the gap between these teams, between their payrolls, between perhaps their qualities as well. Though, of course, we've seen spending money doesn't always equate to victories, but it certainly gives you a better chance. So good idea. I don't see it happening. And certainly, Rich, on a positive note, all of these questions that we raise, all these issues we discussed with the idea of improving competitive balance, they're worth discussing because the sport does have a competitive balance problem. Yes, different teams make the playoffs. Yes, the expanded playoffs creates more opportunity. But talk to someone in Cleveland, talk to someone in Tampa Bay, and tell them, hey, you're on a level playing field. No, they're not buying it. And they shouldn't buy it. It's not true. Love the creativity always, Rich. Thanks for the question. Keep them coming for sure. Lots of great questions this week. If you want to get involved down the road, the voicemail is 646-543-7072, or you can email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. One more episode coming on the feed this week. It'll be the roundtable with Grant, Andy, and Mark. That'll be coming at you on Wednesday morning. They're going to talk about some of the key teams who are going to be the Movers and shakers this winter with the hot stove season. Also, I think some Thanksgiving content that they're going to squeeze in there as well. Also, this is the best time of the year to join The Athletic. You won't see a better deal all year long. $1 a month for 12 months. That's right. So that equals $12 for the entire year. You can't beat that. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show to get that deal. Uh, Ken, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. You too, Tim. And I hope everyone out there does as well. 